0: good morning please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 Matthew chapter 1 in your pew Bible that's page 675 we just finished up a series on prayer uh, I I enjoyed it I hope you enjoyed it too and then um, appreciate Dale last week stepping in and uh, preaching for me while we were gone and had to be gone for a a family funeral. It was very good to see everybody, but then a stomach bug got passed around, and 12 people at the funeral ended up uh, getting sick, and it was just awful. Uh, But that's the way it goes, right? That's the mixed bag of of family, right? All right. Uh, So we're going to start a new sermon series on Matthew. Uh, When I first became a believer, Matthew was sort of my go-to book. Uh, and the reason is because the only Bible I had was a little Gideon Bible that they handed out to me in school of all places, uh, but I had a little red Gideon Bible, and I began reading the book of Matthew, and goodness gracious, all the teaching, all the, uh, the wonderful things in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it's just uh, incredible. I had no idea that the Bible held so much um, for me to know, and so it sort of became my go-to book. I'd say it's still my go-to book. Matthew and Genesis, those are my two go-to books uh, in the Bible. And in fact, my first sermon series here, my second Sunday of preaching here, I started out preaching Genesis because I love Genesis so much. Um, But then I also, uh, and and now I'm starting to preach Matthew. I'm starting to preach Matthew. And uh, we're not going to preach all the way through. You know, with the Genesis uh, series, I've, I've split it up into chunks because the big books of the Bible, it can just be exhausting to go through them uh, week after week after week. So, uh, I knew a, I knew a pastor in, in Chicago. He was he started preaching the book of Luke, and it took him two years uh, to preach the book of Luke. So, some of the longer books in the Bible, I'm just not gonna I'm just not gonna go all the way through it. First Corinthians we did last year was probably long enough, probably about long enough uh, for a sermon series. So, uh, in Genesis, I did sort of uh, the the first uh, I did the first eleven maybe twelve chapters where it came. From creation all the way up to the call of Abraham, and then we called it a day and went on to something else. And then a year or so later, we went back and we did the whole life of Abraham. Um, after this series, maybe two series in the future, we're going to go back to Genesis and we're going to look at the lives of Isaac and Jacob. Um, but now we're going to start. Uh, we're going to start with the book of Matthew. But we're not going to go all the way through the book of Matthew. Uh, I don't know how many weeks this will will be here with this. Probably five or six. Um, but we're going to look at the first four chapters. Uh, the book of Matthew, all the books of the Bible can really kind of be put into outline form, and there are certain, uh, there are certain nice stopping points. So we're going to go all the way through chapter 4. Chapter 5 starts the Sermon on the Mount. So we're just going to kind of pause before we get there, and maybe next year, six or nine months, something like that, we'll come back and we'll get the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and that, and we, that'll be a long series, probably, because uh, we'll want to go fairly slow and it's got it's so rich it's so rich uh, that it, it'll take us a while to get through that So we're going to do the first four uh, books of uh, our first four chapters of uh, the book of Matthew and just to give you a little bit of background for um, for those of you who really enjoy uh, the, some of the background material on the books of the Bible, Uh, Matthew, the book of Matthew is called the book of Matthew. It's really called the gospel according to Matthew. It's not the book of Matthew as in it's a book about Matthew. No, it's a book about Jesus. It's a book about uh, the teachings of Jesus. And it was written by a guy named Matthew. He's also called Levi. So when you read in the gospel of Mark, uh, probably the gospel of Luke too, and the gospel of of Matthew, when it says, there's probably a subheading in your Bible that says, the calling of Levi. It's actually talking about this guy, Matthew. It seems like in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, everybody had two or three names, okay? I don't know how many of you have, have, you have, your, you have your actual name, but then everybody else calls you something, okay? It calls you something else. Peter, you know Peter wasn't Peter's real name? You, you know that? You know what Peter's real name? His first name, he had, a, he had a first and last name. His name was Simeon Barjona, okay? You probably never heard of it said that way, but uh, I heard a, a funny guy one time say his name was Simon Johnson, in, in, in modern day thinking, his name was Simon Johnson. He was, the, he was Simon, the son of John. Simon Johnson was his name. But Peter said, you know what? I'm going to call you Rocky. I'm going to call you. So Jesus gave, he gave a lot of people nicknames. Uh, and, and so I don't know if Matthew is a nickname or if, Le- I don't think Levi's a nickname. Levi is probably his real given name, but they called him Matthew. Uh, and he was a tax collector. He was one of the 12 disciples. So uh, he was one of those, those special people that Jesus set aside to do a very specific work there are four gospels two of them are written by actual 12 actual ones of the 12 disciples Matthew and John John Mark was not one of the 12 but it seems like he was this kid who followed the 12 around like a puppy dog okay he was he seemed to be there everywhere and the book of mark people say is the witness of the of the the disciple Peter that Peter dictated all of this to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. And then you have Luke. And Luke never even met Jesus. He never even met Jesus. In fact, he wasn't even Jewish, he was a Gentile. Um, and so his, his uh, perspective and all that, he, he was an investigative journalist, is what he was. He went around and found all of the eyewitnesses. Um, but we're not talking about Luke, we're talking about Matthew. Matthew was a former tax collector. And that doesn't just mean that he was an accountant who worked for the IRS, okay? It's much worse than that. Because in those days, they were collecting taxes not for their own government, not for their own country, not for the upkeep of the infrastructure of, of the, their own roads of Israel. Taxes then for them were um, it was money extorted from their oppressor. Money extorted from their oppressor. All the money that they gave in taxes did not go for the betterment of Israel. It went straight to Rome. It went straight to Rome. And so most of us don't like paying taxes but at least if if a new bridge or a new road is built, we can say, well, at least they gave me a new road. At least they built a new bridge here. At least they've done something with my taxes that I agree with. But all of Israel at this time said, they're just taking everything from us and taking it back to Rome to build their stadiums, to build their temples, to their pagan gods, and give it all to the emperor. And there were certain Jewish people who were part of the racket. And Matthew was one of them. So he wasn't just an IRS agent. He wasn't somebody who roped into this. He was somebody who said, Rome needs a few people and I get to make a buck off of this too? All right, I'll do it. And so everybody in the country looked at him and called him a betrayer. You betrayer of our own people. You're taking all of our stuff and you're giving it to them and you're taking a little cut for yourself. Hmm. There was one place where Jesus was talking about uh, people that people that are evil. And, he, and he, he, he tells people, hey, if you've got a brother that has stumbled into a sin, you should go confront them. And if they don't repent, you should take a, somebody with you and, and, and you should talk to them and the two of you should convince that person to repent. And if that doesn't happen, then you should take them before the whole assembly and everybody confront them, intervene with them on their sin. And if they don't repent even then, well, then you just treat them like a tax collector. Which is to say, <laughs> you can treat them... Uh, Treat them like somebody who has left your value system. You're not one of us anymore. And Matthew, to everybody around, was that person. You're not one of us anymore, Matthew. You're in bed with the enemy. You have taken up the cause of the oppressor against your own people. How dare you? How dare you do that? Um, Incredible thing is that when Jesus walked by and saw him, and Jesus looked at him, this is the power of the Holy Spirit to draw people. He said, come follow me. And Matthew just gets up from the table, from the booth, and leaves it all behind and follows Jesus. Incredible, the power that Jesus has to call people. When the gospel call comes out, you respond. Now, Matthew wrote his gospel for a reason. All of the books in the Bible are written for a reason, and it's very important that you know that reason. You probably just say, well, God just inspired somebody to write this down, and and that's exactly true. But all the books of the Bible are written in a time, in a place, in a situation for a specific reason. And the book of Matthew, I think um, uh, what you can see is that he uses so much Jewish language in it, it's obvious to every scholar that he is writing to persuade Jewish people to follow Christ, to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus is born about uh, around the year one, okay? Uh, actually, most people say now four or five B.C., whatever, okay? We fixed our calendar very early in the, <laughs> I mean, A.D. is Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. That's one. That's when Jesus is born in our minds. And all of these dates are very hard to hard to pin down. And then he around the time he's 30 years old he's teaching and preaching around the time he's 33 years old he's crucified died resurrected ascended and then about 30 years later Matthew writes his book why did he write his book and why did he need to persuade Jewish people in the beginning all believers were Jewish people that those 120 believers in the upper room on the day of Pentecost all Jewish everybody who converted on the day of Pentecost all 3000 of them all Jewish For the first several books of the book of Acts, every believer is Jewish until you get Cornelius, who seems to be about the first Gentile convert, the first non-Jewish person to start following Jesus, the Ethiopian eunuch, who seems to be one of those very early people also who's following Jesus. And then for a good 30 years or so, maybe 20 years or so, the church is almost entirely Jewish. And then... Something happens, and then something happens. And you can read a lot about it in the New Testament. You can infer some things in the New Testament. But Jewish people started to realize to, to embrace Jesus is, seems, to be, seems to feel like to most of us, or at least we're getting pressure from outside sources, that we're turning our backs on Moses and the law and our whole heritage and Israel and the temple and everything. And I just can't do that. But they begin to step back into Judaism. The book of Galatians, Paul writes the book of Galatians saying, "No, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, 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 don't do don't do that." When you're what you're going back into is not good news. It's not the gospel. It's not freedom from the law. It's not freedom from anything. You can't do that. Please don't don't no. And yet, they seem to be leaving the church in droves. The whole book of Hebrews is this very, we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it's this very eloquent person giving all kinds of sermons and and examples and and, um, sermons and lessons from the Old Testament about how Jesus is superior to everything, superior to angels, superior to all priesthood, superior to Moses, superior to the law. He is the Sabbath. Don't leave this. It's a very Jewish book, the book of Hebrews, as it sounds like, as it should be. And yet, it still keeps happening. And until about the year, I don't know, the mid-60s, A.D., 60, 70 A.D., 80 A.D., 90 A.D. And by that time, the church is almost entirely Gentile. And this rift occurs. And the book of John is him trying to bring them back in. Please do not abandon this. In the book of Matthew is him saying, please, please, keep believing. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. You're not turning your back on the Old Testament by uh, embracing Jesus. You're fulfilling it. You're embracing it fully to believe in Jesus. And so when you read the book of Matthew, you will find this phrase all over it. This happened to fulfill what the prophet said. And he puts out this idea to all of the Jewish people, his brothers, his kinsmen, and he says... If you believe in Jesus, you're believing in the prophets. You're believing in the law. Everything that we stand for, if you believe in Jesus, you're believing in that fully. And to not believe in Jesus is to even abandon those things as well. Don't do it. But it still kept happening. It still kept happening. And today, uh, trying to share the gospel with a Jewish person, depending on how orthodox they are, depending on how conservative they are, very hard. Uh, we have some people that we support, some missionaries that we support named Levi and Stephanie, and they've got the hardest ministry out there, proclaiming Jesus uh, to the nation of Israel. All right. Have you ever done any research on your ancestry? All right. How many of you have done something like that? How many Have you taken the, the DNA test? Anybody here taken the DNA test? Found it? You, you found out all about yourself, found out about where you, where you come from. You're not actually English or Irish. You're Japanese, of all things. Maybe they switched the test, if that's the problem, if that's the case. Uh, it's always interesting to get to know your ancestors. And, you know, for Americans especially... We all come from these people who left the old country, left the old way, and here we all come over here to be Americans, to start a new chapter. But here we are, how many generations later, and everybody's like, what did we leave behind, actually? Who was that? Who were all these people? Who made that decision to get on the boat and come on over here? How did this all happen? I want to know where I came from. There's got to be more to me than just being a Mainer or an Oklahoman or something like that. People have only, white people have only been living in Oklahoma since 1890. Surely, I I mean, I've got people who immigrated to Oklahoma from somewhere else. Where did they come from? Arkansas, most likely. All right, just next door. Anyway, but it's always interesting to uh, do a little bit of research on your ancestors. Unless you don't like what you find. Have any of you done any research on your ancestors and said, huh, wish I didn't know that now? Wish I, wish I didn't realize that. Now, uh, maybe if you start thinking about your family history, especially the people that you knew or that your parents knew or that your grandparents knew, sometimes you start saying, ouch, I really wish I didn't know that story. Uh, I don't know, have you ever seen the movie Hitch? It's a very fun romantic comedy. Uh, and Will Smith, he's a smooth operator, let me tell you. And on their first date, he takes this girl uh, Even Mendez, he takes her to Ellis Island. They live in New York. He takes her to Ellis Island, uh, and uh, he, they, they, he gets a private tour. I don't know how you get a private tour of Ellis Island, okay, but he's got the inn somehow, um, and he's given her a, a, this private tour of Ellis Island, and she says, you know what? I actually had a relative that came through here, and he said, oh, yeah, and he comes over and leans on the book, and the, there's this guard there, and they, they, they she's got, he's got it. He's found it. He did, the, he did the work on her answer and found the signature of her relative that came through Ellis Island. Oh my gosh, it's so romantic. And he just looks over the guard like, yeah, I know. I'm that good. And she starts looking at it and she's crying. It's such a beautiful moment. And then she starts sobbing uncontrollably. And it gets pretty undignified and she runs off. And he just looks at the guard and says, I pictured that going differently. And then the next thing, you see them walking down the road, and she, she says, you know, it's really just kind of a, a chapter in the family's history that we'd all like to forget. And he says, yeah, I guess I didn't think about it. When, when I saw that he was called the Butcher of Cadiz, I just thought he was a butcher. I didn't know he was a mass murderer. Well, in a moment, we're going to read a passage of Scripture. Scripture that may have, if you know your Bible, it may have a little bit of that effect. Because we're going to read Jesus' ancestry. And um, there are some people in it, good, bad, and ugly. And find you'll, what you'll find is that in his ancestry, his ancestry, a lot like yours. If you are a lifelong student of the Bible, if you know your Bible really well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause after I read certain, certain significant names, and I just want you to just, just recall to mind everything you know about that person in an instant. And then we'll go on and just think about everything you know, because this, this, this passage, it could be the least inspiring passage in the whole New Testament, except if you know your Bible, in which case a thousand sermons should spring to mind. As I read it now, if you don't know your Bible, if you're not much of a Bible Bible scholar, and these are just names, don't worry about it because we're going to go through a few of them, um, a little bit later as part of this sermon. Okay, let's let's start reading. Let's pray first, and let's start reading Jesus' ancestry. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your uh, your Word. We thank you that Matthew has written these things down, and he wrote it down in this way at the prompting of your Spirit to do a certain work. And Lord, do that certain work in our hearts as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, pause. Think of Abraham. Everything you know about Abraham. Was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, who had his change, name changed to what? Israel. If you ever wonder where Israel comes from, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And what does Israel mean? Here's a pop quiz question. He struggles with God, in a good way. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. How many brothers? Eleven. Twelve sons uh, of Israel. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Judah and Tamar. It doesn't say Judah and his wife Tamar. That's quite a story. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salomon, Salomon the father of Boaz. Boaz. How many of you ladies have been in a Bible study uh, about the book of Ruth? One of these days, I'm gonna preach the book of Ruth. Do your Bible study now, because I'm gonna ruin it when I preach it, because I think everybody teaches it wrong. Anyway, Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Oh, Ruth. the hallmark movie of the Bible. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Solomon the wise. Solomon in all his glory. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And her name was Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the knucklehead. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jump and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. And I don't know much about Uzziah. In fact, I don't know anything about Uzziah, except that one of the most glorious passages of Scripture that there is starts out by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And who said that? Isaiah. Isaiah. He's a priest. He goes into the temple. When you go into the temple, what do you expect to see? lampstand over here, table over here, incense altar over here, and one day in the year the king Uzziah died, he walks into the temple and he doesn't see the lampstand, and he doesn't see the table, and he doesn't see the incense altar. And he doesn't see the uh, engraved seraphim and cherubim on the wall. He sees the Lord and the real seraphim and cherubim above him in the year the king Uzziah died. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah that we mentioned in the sermon a few weeks ago. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. How many of you have a young man in your family named Josiah? I don't know. It seemed to be a very, uh, it was very in vogue several years ago to start naming all of your young men. Josiah. All the boys born in your family should be named Josiah because Josiah was this great reformer king who, at the age of 16, completely redirected Israel's path from paganism back to faithfulness to the covenant God. Oh, Josiah, the great boy king. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, the true pagan, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And when you hear exile to Babylon, do not just hear a little trip to Babylon, don't just hear, I lost my home. What you have to hear is that God extricated his covenant people from heaven and took them someplace else because they were no longer worthy to live there. Because only the people faithful to the covenant could live there. And it wasn't all the people, it was the survivors. When you hear exile to Babylon, what you should remember is that This is not nice people dressed in robes going to Babylon because they were unfaithful. This is very thin and gaunt people who are starving from two years of siege in Jerusalem. The entire city has been razed to the ground. Most of the people are dead. And here we are, the very gaunt, skinny, wounded survivors, naked in chains, being dragged, walking a 1,000 miles. That's the exile to Babylon. And God says you're going to be there and you're never coming back. After the exile to Babylon, because they weren't going to be there forever, a generation was going to be there, 70 years, a generation was going to be there, was going to be born there, was going to die there, and the next generation could come back. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And it is Zerubbabel who brought them back. He was the next in line for the throne, never really got to be king king in a real sense, never got to be a king sovereign over his own nation, he really wasn't able to rise that high, the the kings of the Medes and the Persians wouldn't let him rise quite that high, but he was a faithful man who said, here we are, I'm going to do the thing like Abraham and I'm going to lead my family and we're going to go to a land we've never been before, it's the land of our ancestors, but it's a land none of us have ever been to before, And we're going to go back, and we're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Right now, it lies in a pile of rubble, but we're going to go build it back. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and I don't know anything about Zadok, but do you know what his name means? Righteous. Okay? Righteous. They're starting a righteous line here. Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, not that previous Jacob, a new Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Very nice poetic symmetry there. And what you should read is 14 generations from our founding to our highest glory in King David. And 14 generations from our highest glory to our absolute lowest point ever. Lower than when we were slaves in Egypt. We were enslaved in Egypt not because of our sins. God sent us down there. And the pharaohs, they are the ones that enslaved us. But in Babylon... We did that to ourselves. And 14 generations from our lowest point to our greatest hope. God is bringing us back to that place. And Matthew wants every Jewish person who's thinking about turning away from Christ to say, hey, remember what God has brought us through And where he has brought us to, let's not walk away at our greatest moment of hope for all of our future. Your family history probably has highs and lows. Probably has honor and shame, just like a lot of the people uh, in this passage. For my own family, our place of uh, highest honor, our person of highest honor, at least in memory, is Pawpaw. My, my granddad was named Jesse Dale Holland, and uh, he was faithful to the Lord. He became a believer at the age of 19, and he uh, uh, was a faithful preacher of the word. And in all of our family, if anybody ever said, are you a Christian? They would say, of course I'm a Christian. My granddad was a preacher. It would all come to him. If you want to respect me, I, my only respect comes from my granddad. Everything comes comes from him, my highest honor, all of our heritage, all of our faith, everything good about our family is encapsulated in this guy. He's our greatest honor. He's the most faithful person. If you ever had a question about anything, well we'll have to ask Paul Paul. He's the patriarch in that way. However, we have our shame. We have our ones that we'd rather not talk about. We have the ones that we'd rather not think about but any time, that we go through the family history, there are a few things we can't deny. There are a few things we can't deny. There were drinkers. There were abusers. There were gamblers. There were all kinds of people that we'd rather not talk about. There were all kinds of people that uh, there are people still alive today who are sort of reeling from the treatment that that person, now dead many years, is gave them. And in the very distant past, uh, especially in my family, um, uh, we have, when I come from both sides, mom and dad, uh, there, are, there are a couple of, of people, and some of them I don't even know their names, that, wow, that's a real shame. That's a, that's a, a shame that, uh, that it's going to take a lot for us to, uh, to get over. One of my grandmothers, my grandmother on my mother's side, she was pretty sure a couple of her brothers were in the Klan, all right? And on my dad's side, my granddad's granddad's granddad was a slave owner. All right? So we've got clansmen and slave owners on both sides of the family. Quite a shame. Quite Not something for us to be proud of. That slave owner, by the way, his name was Pinky. Pinky Holland. A man named Pinky. So many things to be ashamed of. People we'd rather not talk about. People we'd rather not think about. People whose sin will haunt us for a little while. People that we need to redeem the family's name from. And you probably have some of those people in your family too. Abusers, addicts, sluggers, out-of-wedlock pregnancies, people who've been to jail, people even worse, people you don't want to talk about. I've got a cousin, Ray. I don't even want to tell you what he's been about, what all has happened in his life, what he what all he's done, we hope we never see him again. And when we look back at these people that are in Jesus' lineage, we can think about their virtue and their vice. We can think about the high calling that God gave them, and we can talk about the terrible vice or sin that they also brought along with them that God had to redeem them from. Abraham, very faithful man. God calls him out of paganism. And just like Matthew, he just gets up and walks away from it. Walks away from the paganism. Walks away from the like the like walking away from the tax booth. Walk away like walking away from the net uh, for the, the disciples who were fishermen. Just walks away from it all with his family and says, We're heading out because the one God has called my name. And when he got out there, he tried to pass off his sister a couple of or his wife a couple of times as his sister. Uh, And the real threat was that she would be taken by another man. Okay? A real vice there. Just to save his skin, he was willing to have his wife lose all her virtue. Then there was Jacob. Jacob, who saw a great vision of commerce between heaven and earth. He knew heaven and earth do have something. They're not completely separated. God is making a way. God is making a way for us to get to heaven and for heaven to come to earth. We are not separated by so wide a gulf that he cannot bridge that gap. Yes, Jacob, who lied and cheated and swindled his brother at his brother's point of great vulnerability. But Jacob, who also saw the calling of God on their family and valued it more than his brother did. All these people are kind of a mixed bag. And then you have Judah and Tamar. Judah and Tamar. There needed to be a continuation of the line of Judah. It was, a, it was sort of, it was a, there was a threat that the line of Judah could be uh, stamped out. So Judah had a child by his daughter-in-law. Okay? That's never right. That's never okay. But the line continued. Because Jesus comes from the line of Judah. We call him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So Judah himself, quite a mixed bag of a person there as well. And then, uh, greatest of all, what did we talk about? Rahab the the harlot. A Gentile. Okay? And we're a very inclusive society now. We really don't care that much about mixed-race marriages. in that day, that's a very big deal. All right? Not too long ago in this country, that's a very big deal. Not only, but they, it's not even that their skin colors were different, their value systems were different. In the Old Testament, it tells you not to marry outside of the people of Israel. And it's not a racist thing, it's a value system thing, because they were all Semitic peoples. Their skin color was really about the same. okay? It wasn't like that. But Rahab was pagan. She's Canaanite. She lived in Jericho. And when the people of Israel are coming to invade the land and take what God uh, is giving them, what did she do? What did she do? She did what to her people is treason. But what she really did was she said, I see the power of the one God. I'm converting away from my people and my value system and my culture, which I know is doomed for destruction, and I'm choosing life, life in the one God. So she started a righteous line. She started a righteous line. She is, is listed. Women aren't always listed in people's genealogies in the Old Testament. In fact, I guess we could say women are never listed in people's genealogies for the priests and for the prophets in the Old Testament, the kings in the Old Testament. The women are never listed. And Matthew says, by the way, by the way, there are some women that you might call scandalous, but God has included them in the line of the Messiah. Don't miss that. There's Rahab. And it all works up. It all works up to King David. Jesus is the son of David. David is the one who will put this great everlasting king on the throne. And look at David's life. So much vice and virtue in David's own life. How faithful was David. How brave was he. How confident was he in the Lord's ability to save them. So much so that he, having never been in combat, says, I will take on their greatest champion, a giant, one-on-one with the help of the Lord. And I'm fully confident in his ability to save me and our whole nation. What faith, what virtue is that? David, who wrote the hymn book of the people of Israel, we still sing his songs. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We say it, we memorize it, we internalize it. We say it at every funeral. He wrote it. David, who established Jerusalem, as the place that would bear God's name and brought the Ark of the Covenant in with great worship and set it down and said, here, here is where we will worship. All Israel will come here to worship. We will establish the capital of our country, defeated all the Philistines, got rid of all the Canaanites and said, now here, here is where it will be. And then David, who is also known for his uh, affair with Bathsheba. But not only that, he's a murderer because he got rid of Uriah. Bathsheba's name is not in the, in the lineage. It's even worse. A Gentile's name, another Gentile man, Uriah the Hittite, his name. And a whole reminder, Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. A whole reminder. Matthew says, I'm not going to pull any punches. I'm going to remind you of the whole incident in this one phrase. Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's husband. Uriah, who would have died for David any day. Uriah, who fought with David in the trenches, in the caves, in the wilderness for 30 years before David was really established on the throne. Uriah, who would have done anything for his king. David, you turned your back on your most loyal man. You defamed his name and his wife's name, all of it, with one action. With one action. But I'll come back to Zerubbabel. Because in all of this lineage, all of these people in Jesus' ancestry, there was a guy who very timidly took on a responsibility. He didn't really, I don't think necessarily want this. He had not been trained for this. He, did not, he was not raised in a palace. And he was always having to be encouraged in his work. But God said, Zerubbabel, you're my signet ring. You're the authority, my authority on earth. I'm sending you. You're gonna do this. I'm gonna take you out of Babylon and you're gonna lead all these people back to Israel and you're going to rewrite my people's history. He doesn't give very much press, but he was a person who God called to change the the trajectory again. Abraham called to change the trajectory out of paganism into worship of the one God. David, let's get rid of all these pagans around us. Let's establish our people as a country, and then all the unfaithfulness that followed. But Zerubbabel, you are called with all the checkered past, with everything that has happened in the family's history, with everything that has happened to our nation, I'm calling you to bring the people back to a faithful place. And I don't know about your family. I don't know what you're trying to get over. I don't know what's in your past that you'd rather forget. But all I can say is the gospel call is going out to you for you to embrace Jesus as the Savior of not only you and your life, but your family's life. And God may be asking you to be the Zerubbabel who says, you know what, I'm ill-prepared. I'm ill-equipped. I'm not a very, uh, uh, you know, much of a leader. I'm not a very valiant person. But if God is calling me to lead our people, then I guess I'll lead the people. I'll lead our family. And we'll go back to Jerusalem. And we'll set the cornerstone of the temple. And it may not all get done in my lifetime. And I may not be very good at it. But I'm going to let my faith in Jesus Christ be the cornerstone for my family to all begin to have that same faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe the scandalous reputation, history of our family can start to change directions. Jesus' whole life, from his pre-incarnate days as uh, God the Son in heaven, the second member of the Trinity, to the virgin conception, the virgin birth, to the teachings, to the death, and the resurrection, has all been very scandalous. His ancestors, all very scandalous. The reason for the virgin birth is so that we can put the sin of Adam away, out of the Savior's blood, out of the Savior's bloodline. That's the reason for the virgin birth. But the reason that he is born of a woman is so that he can be son of man and relate to us and have all these people in in his ancestry as well. The Bible makes no apology for Jesus, no apology for all of his uh, ancestors' past. He knows who he is, and he knows that he's the great I Am. The question has never been, Jesus, what do you have to say for yourself? Look at all these people in your past. What do you have to say for yourself? Has never been the question. The question has always been, who do you say that he is? All of this information is given to you right here. I'm displaying Jesus, his ancestry, his reality, his, um, his birth, everything about him, his teachings, everything for you. Who do you say that he is? And he puts that question on you. He stood in silence when accused. And he's waiting for you to, to declare your faith in him. Will you do that? If you will, then he will become... Lord of your life. He'll expose and deal with all the scandal and all the righteousness, even in your family's history. He'll push you to repent of the generational sins in your family's history. He'll push you to rewrite the reputation of your family name. He'll take away all the shame of sinful behavior and bring in the honor that comes with living out kingdom principles. You won't have to hide the skeletons. Anymore, You'll be able to talk about them openly knowing that they're forgiven and that Jesus is forging a new trajectory for you and your descendants. I challenge you this week to sit down with a pen and paper and try to make a family tree of all of your ancestors, every, everybody that anybody can remember back from, from way on back. You'll have to call some of the old folks to do it, but they'll be glad to get the call. Call them. What was the name? What were they like? Give me the nitty-gritty. I want to know everything, the best and the worst. Were they abusers? Were they addicts? Were they sluggards? Were they saints? Were there people who followed the Lord? Were they faithful to God and generous to their neighbors? Was there a big secret in the family? What was the proudest thing that we ever had in our family's history? It's important for you, though, not to be bogged down by whatever shame you find. Instead, you'll want to face it with courage and humbly ask God to make your generation the generation that redeems so much of the family's history. You are to be the Zerubbabel of your family. God has chosen and called you to be this person who begins the new chapter. Set down the cornerstone of faith in your family's temple. They're looking to you. They may not know it, but they're looking to you. Repent of your past sins and your family's past sins. Lead them out of the exile of sin and tragedy and estrangement from God, and begin a new history, a history with a future and with a great destiny. If your family's history is a good story to read, though, great. I'm glad. If it's a story of many faithful generations, then I'd encourage you to also write down that history and ask God to help you continue it and not be the Jeconiah who derails all the good work that Josiah did. More than likely, just like Israel and just like Jesus' own pedigree, you have a mixed history. Be reconciled to it. Be redeemed from it and forge a new path. In Jesus, God was doing a new thing. In your life, Jesus will do a new thing. Let him do it. It's a good thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you are a God who changes directions When we are going down the wrong road, Lord, you get in our way. You become the obstacle and you make us turn around and go back. Help us, Lord, to always go back to you. Help us to be faithful. Give us courage to have conversations that need to be had, to face things that need to be faced. Give us courage to live the new life of the new man that you create by your sacrifice. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Have a good night.